Welcome back to Miners of Mayhem. I am Eden, and with me is my favorite crotch cutter, Brianna. I'm your favorite crotch cutter. Yes, the word is the word favorite is in there, so I'm um, gonna take it. I'll let you have it. <laughs> what are we doing today? Oh boy, I'm taking you on a bad road. Um, we are doing. Loveless, Tackett, Rippy, and Lawrence. Four of them. Of you haven't heard this? No. Oh, boy. You know, as much as I love true crime, it's like none of the minors that, you know, we cover, I don't ever hear of them. Yeah. Uh, oh, boy. This one, uh, this one's rough. Let's so, get into it. All right. For this episode of Miners of Mayhem, I'm bringing you a very heart-wrenching case. I have decided not to curtail any details of this case. You all deserve to know what monsters these four teenage girls were, some more monstrous than the others, but all monsters in their own actions and even lack of actions, and that'll make sense later. This will be my one and only massive trigger warning. The victim was a 12-year-old little girl, just a baby. This case involves sexual assault, sodomy, strangulation, assault, stabbing, endless torture over a period of hours, and topping it off with arson. That's quite the trigger warning. Yes. So absolutely no tiny humans. Put them away. And if you can't stomach true horrific brutality, please skip this ap episode. It's, I'm not exaggerating when I say this is a bad one. Oh, boy. Mm-hmm. So to begin on this road to hell, we're going to dive into the perpetrator's background and see what we find. I will begin with Tony Lawrence. She was born in Madison, Indiana on February 14, 1976. At the age of nine, she was abused by a relative, and at the age of 14, she was raped by a teenage boy. So not really off to a great start. These events in her life led to self-harm, attempted suicide, and sleeping around. Her family life seemed to be pretty stable and the closest thing to, to a normal household when compared to some of the other girls. I couldn't find much more than this, so we'll move on to the next perp. Hope Rippey was born in Madison, Indiana on June 9, 1976. Can you say that name again? Hope Rippey. Hope Rippey. Yep. Her parents divorced, but then they reconciled. Hope was described as having very low self-esteem and was more of a follower than anything else. Other than her parents' divorce, I could not find any evidence of abuse or neglect, nor could I find the source of her low self-esteem. So this girl was kind of a mystery to me, or else I looked in all the wrong places. Who knows? Our next perp is Lori Tackett. Got it? 
Okay. She also was born in Madison, Indiana on October. I'm sorry. I keep wanting to say Madison, Wisconsin. Oh, yeah. That clicks better than Indiana for some reason. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Anyway, Madison, Indiana on October 5th, 1974. Lori's parents took religion to the extreme. Lori commented that she recalled people from church praying over her and attempting to perform an exorcism on her. Why? I don't know. This led Lori down to a path of rebellion. Sorry. Go ahead. I did, got a cough anyway. Um, <coughs> did she, was she acting out? Is that why they wanted like the exorcism or? I didn't dig. Oh, okay. I'm sorry I didn't dig. If I would have known you were going to ask that question, I would have dug. Sorry. So I was just curious. I, I truly don't know. I think, I think we need to remember that the 90s, you know, back in that time zone, that was pretty much the height of the satanic panic. Yeah, that's true. So it, it could have been anything. Yeah. So. Okay. Okay. So this led Lori down a path of rebellion to the extent she even dabbled in the occult. At one point, she even left home, but when her father said he would purchase her a car, she returned home. So, I mean, who wouldn't? Every teenager wants a car, right? Right. <laughs> so, okay, now in, in this paragraph that I have, and why did I forget about this part? Maybe this is why they gave her an exorcism. I have written here that Lori claimed to hear voices, and in 1991, she was hospitalized for mental issues. So maybe that is what, okay. has something to do with yeah. the parents thought they could drown out mental issues with religion, maybe. Yeah. This is all just guessing here. I have nothing to back that up. I have a quote from Lori, but I couldn't verify its origin, so I can't give credit where credit is due, and I honestly apologize for this. Apparently, Lori commented, Quote, my destiny is to murder someone and spend the rest of my life in prison, unquote. This statement is very chilling after putting together the whole scenario. Mm. It's just, I saved the worst for last. And uh, her childhood was absolutely appalling. So our final perpetrator is Melinda Loveless. She was born in New Albany, Indiana on October 28, 1975. Melinda was the youngest of three girls born to Larry and Marjorie Loveless. This was one fudged up family, family dynamic. So we'll dig in. Larry was a horrible man to say the least. He molested all three of his girls at a very young age. This monster of a man also abused his wife beyond anything that I could even imagine. It made me sick researching this. And honestly, if this was a different podcast, I could do probably two, three, four podcasts on just this man. Gross. Yes, beyond gross. I mean, some of the things I'm going to tell you here coming up are just, wow. I should have saved this one for when we launched video. Yeah. I'm <laughs> okay. Which, 
yeah, we'll go. We'll get into that. that later. Uh oh, I lost my place just a little bit. Okay. Um, he would take Marjorie to bars and find random men to have sex with her while he watched. Is Marjorie his wife? Yes. And the mother of their three daughters. He would also invite his co-workers to their home to, quote, share his wife. Gross. I mean, if you, if you, if people out there are into that, like, good on you, but I feel like in this case, it's more damaging than... Okay, so yes, if you have two consenting adults, you be you, boo, and do whatever it is, as long as it's consenting. Right. In this situation, Marjorie did not consent. And you'll find that out here shortly. Okay. So this was not okay. Okay. So on more than one occasion, Marjorie found Larry lying in bed wearing his underwear. Wearing, I'm um, excuse me, her underwear. Now I didn't put this part in, but it pops into my mind. When they had company, he would literally grab random underwear out of the dirty laundry and walk into the room smelling them and saying, whose underwear is this? You stink. And he would do this in front of visitors. What? It didn't matter if it was his daughter's underwear, his wife's underwear. I mean, this, this is, I, yeah. What the hell? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so... I feel like I'm going to be making a lot of disgusting facial expressions. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So she found him in bed wearing her underwear on several occasions. And I didn't put this in there, but she would often catch him masturbating with her underwear and wearing makeup. And, and if you want to do things like that, you do you, boo. But once again, in this con context, this is not okay doesn't sound okay. No. Larry was a very jealous man. One time he thought a man was speaking too pro provocatively to Marjorie and he chased him down with a broomstick. Okay. Oh, man. So not only did Larry molest his girls at a young age, before that he treated them horribly. The oldest daughter, Michelle, would be hit by him for crying. And when it came to potty training, he would literally beat Michelle up, like when she had an accident or whatever. And when it came time to bathing and diaper changes, Larry would touch and fondle the girls in all of their most private regions. He literally just tormented these girls. That's their father. They're, they're supposed to be protected by him. Right. He doesn't deserve his wife or his children. Right? Keep going. Okay. We're like 12 minutes in and I'm already sick of this. Okay, right? And we got a long ways to go. One incident that struck me as also being particularly cruel was when Michelle could not recite her ABCs. He locked her up in the closet for hours, but it gets even worse. Knowing that she was terrified of the dark, he would remove the light bulbs just to add to her torment. Yep. One night, a seven-year-old Michelle walked into her parents' bedroom only to be shot at by her dad, missing her head by only mere inches. He shot at her? Yes. 
pulled the pistol right out from underneath his pillow. What the hell? Larry basically turned into a lazy drunk who did absolutely nothing to contribute to the family. To give you a little more atrocity on this man, Larry forced Marjorie to have sex with multiple partners at once. Basically a gang rape. Because, once again, Marjorie was... Consenting. Exactly. Um, after this happened, Marjorie tried to refuse Larry's sex, but this just led him to rape her in front of their girls. In front of the kids? On more than one occasion, Marjorie attempted suicide. She just couldn't. She just couldn't. I don't think Okay. So Marjorie finally reached her breaking point in 1990. And she lost her shit. She caught him spying on one of their girls and her friend and she grabbed a kitchen knife and attempted to attack him with it. And honestly, I can't say I blame her not one damn little bit. Well, if you think about it, if she wasn't consenting and she had all of those things done to her, that is mentally traumatizing, emotionally traumatizing, physically traumatizing. And when you get to that breaking point, there's no saying what you will do. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So after this happened, I read in two different places. In one place, I read that Larry filed for divorce and moved to Florida. In another place, I read that Marjorie was the one to file for divorce. So I can't confirm one way or the other which way it was, but they did divorce. And at first, he did attempt to write letters to the girls, but this didn't last very long. And finally, he stopped all contact with his daughters. Good. Well, Melinda was in, Melinda, the youngest daughter, her brain must have been brainwashed, blocked out a lot oh. of the trauma. And she truly loved her dad. I think she mm -hmm. had a mental block. Yeah. You know, our okay. brains have a tendency to protect us sometimes. Yeah. So she didn't, she, I'm sure she felt abandoned by her father. She did love her dad. Okay. So it was hard on her. Okay. Now the older girls remember all the, the abuse and Michelle was very open in many of the interviews and stuff about it. Oh, okay. But Melinda kept in denial. So there are many more atrocities, but I've given you a foundation about this family and what probably helped lead Melinda down the path to murder. To put it bluntly, Melinda's life was a shit show. And now we're going to add to that because Melinda was gay. Now, in this day and age, being gay is accepted and not a big deal. No. We all love us a, a fun, loving, gay friend. Mm -hmm. And that, that's God honest truth. But this was a different time when being gay was not accepted in the community. It was not the normal standard, and especially in school. So it was like frowned upon. Oh, yes. Okay. This was, 
this was just a horrible, horrible time to be a gay person. Okay. When Melinda told her mother that she was gay, Marjorie was absolutely furious. And they had a major argument over this. And this upset Melinda so much that she actually had a meltdown in the school cafeteria, screaming out that she wanted to die and had nothing to live for. She, yeah. She did finally calm down and she decided that she did not care what people thought about her being gay. Now, Melinda really continued to struggle. At the age of 15, she was still wetting the bed. No kidding. Yes. And that is often a good indication of early sex, sexual abuse, you know? She started hanging out with more of a punk rock crowd over in Louisville, getting drunk and living it up on the wild side. So, I'm gonna go touch base on the victim and get into the case storyline after that. Um, Shanda Scherer was born June 6, 1979 in Pineville, Kentucky to Stephen and Jacqueline Scherer. Stephen and Jackie's marriage ended in divorce. Jack Jackie eventually remarried and their family moved to Louisville. Shanda attended St. Paul School where she played volleyball, softball, gymnastics, and was a cheerleader. And then once again, her mother's marriage ended a divorce. And in 1991, they made the move to New Albany, Indiana, which Shanda was over the moon about because she loved her father and she had a good relationship with her father. And she had a bonus mom named Sharon. And she really had a good relationship with her bonus mom. Oh, good. So this was absolutely an amazing move for Shanda. Um, where was I? Shanda was described as bubbly, outgoing, and a lot of fun. She was smart, maintained very good grades, and she also maintained an amazing bond with both of her parents, even though they were divorced. Steve and Jackie co-parented well and both wanted the best for their girl. Now, if you guys get a chance, which of course I will put up photos on Facebook, Shanda is just an adorable little 12-year-old girl. Cute as a button. Really? Oh my gosh. Just a doll. Aww. Yep. So at the beginning of the school year, you know, she started a new school. Mm-hmm. And if I'm not mistaken, I didn't put this in here, but I think this is her first experience in public school. She had always attended private school. Really? Yes. Okay. And, and I believe that she did beg her mom to go to public school. So this was her choice. Okay. But at the beginning of the school year, Shanda got into an altercation with a girl named Amanda Heverin. This resulted in both the girls earning time in detention. Oh, no. What was the fight about? Well, one of Shanda's new friends wanted to break up with her boyfriend and give his ring back. She didn't have the guts to do it. And wanting to prove that she could be a really good friend and being the new girl, Shanda volunteered to do this for her. And Shanda walked up to the boy and gave him his ring. 
And the boy was obviously upset and told Shanda that this was none of her business. This boy happened to be Amanda Heverin's cousin. And overhearing this exchange, Amanda butted in and confronted Shanda, which turned into a knockdown, hands thrown fight that had to be broken up by a teacher, which obviously landed both their asses in detention for, I think it was a week. And she was just trying to be nice to her friend. Yeah. You know, but mm. 12 year olds, 12, 13, 14, 15 year olds, you know, you remember those days. <laughs> yep. I'm glad I'm close to the age of where I'm going to forget those days. Yeah. <laughs> so just for a minute, I'm going to go off on a side road. So the events of this case flow a little bit easier. There's so many girls involved in this case that it can tend to get somewhat confusing. Okay. So above I mentioned Amanda Heverin, and although she is not one of the perpetrators, she is a major player in this case. Amanda Heverin is the on-again, off-again girlfriend of Melinda Loveless. Okay. Amanda's not your typical girly girl. She wore her hair cropped short, wore guys' attire, and mostly hung out with the guys. I did look up photos of her online, and if I did not already know better, I would have mistaken her for a boy. So Amanda and Melinda kept their relationship under wraps as neither of them had come out as being gay yet. This basically was their first real relationship, and it did not take long for it to become a full-blown sexual relationship. Unfortunately, it was also a very volatile relationship, weighed down by, by possessiveness, extreme jealousy, and physical fights. So that should give you the gist of where Amanda fits into this, what some would call a love triangle. Mm-hmm. So we'll get back to the storyline. Excuse me for a minute. I have to get a frog out of my throat. (laughs) We left off with Amanda and Shanda landing themselves in detention. And believe it or not, after spending so much time in detention, the two of them became friends. And as Amanda and Shanda's friendship grew, Melinda became threatened by the thought that Shanda was trying to steal Amanda away from her. And she wrote this letter to Shanda, and it goes as follows. Shanda, don't be mad at me, please. I want to be your friend. I just don't like when you speak to Amanda when I'm not there. I mean, why can't we all be friends? You act as if you've got something going with her. Amanda and I are going together, and she loves me, and I love her, and she only wants to be friends with you. You need to accept that. Shanda, Amanda told me you're going through bad times. Well, if you need someone to talk with, you can always talk with me. I don't want you sneaking behind my back. Why don't you speak to Amanda when she's with me? You need to find you a boyfriend because Amanda is mine. You can even ask her. Please talk to us both or you can forget about Amanda. You, me, and Amanda need to have a talk together and get this squared away. Then we could all be friends. Sorry, I am writing so sloppy. Can you meet us at lunch? Your friend, Mel. Now, as a side note, I just want to make it clear, this letter was taken from actual court records. Okay. As that, it was entered into evidence. That letter has a lot of gaslighting in it. Right? Holy. 
The three of these girls never did get any of their issues dealt with. Amanda seemed confused about who she wanted, and Melinda was just letting the jealousy eat her up, and everything just went on a downward spiral from this point going forward. I'm gonna start moving into the crime part of this case now, but if any of you are interested in the complete case from the start to finish, quotes, autopsy reports, sentencing, etc., I highly recommend the book Cruel Sacrifice by Aphrodite Jones. There's also a really good documentary that can be watched on Hulu or the Roku channel. It's um, from the 90s, The Deadliest Decade, season one, episode two. And it's a pretty in-depth documentary and includes Shanda's mother, Jackie, and her bonus mom, Sharon. Mm -hmm. So it's a really good watch. Oh, I'll have to watch it. Um, just a quick question. Mm -hmm. So you said it was like a love triangle. Did Shanda ever come out as gay? Um, yes and no. Okay. I, I, I think Shanda, well, obviously she's only 12 years old. I don't think she knew who she was yet. Okay. Because she did like boys. She also seemed to like Amanda. Okay. So, um, okay. On to the crime. We're, okay, yeah. Jeez. <laughs> Get it together. On to the crime. So please be ready. I held nothing back, and the details are graphic and horrifying. You ready? I'm ready. On the night of January 10th, 1992, 15-year-old Tony, 15-year-old Hope, and 17-year-old Lori, Lori drove from Madison to New Albany to meet up with a 16-year-old Melinda. When the three girls arrived at Melinda's house, they all went to Melinda's room to borrow clothes and get ready for the evening. Lori happened to pull out a knife, saying that she was going to use it to scare Shanda. The girls drove to Jeffersonville, where Shanda was spending the weekend with her dad and her bonus mom. When they arrived, Melinda convinced Hope and Tony to knock on the door and tell Shanda that Amanda wanted to see her, and she's waiting for them at the witch's castle. What is the witch's castle? So, okay. The Witch's Castle is an old ruined stone house located on a desolate hill by the Ohio River. It's also known as Mistletoe, Mistletoe Falls because apparently mistletoe grows rampant there. But there's a lot of folklore surrounding this place. Did you say mistletoes? Yeah, mistletoes. That's an actual plant? What the hell did you think it was? I thought it was just something fake that you hung up at Christmas time. Oh God, you're so naive and I love you so much. You make me smile and you make my heart warm. <gasps> hey, if you you're not learning something new every day, then there you go. There's your tidbit for the day. <laughs> I'm sure you. somebody else out there knew or didn't know that it was an actual plant. I can't be the only one. Oh my God, you are just the cutest, Brianna. <laughs> oh God. Okay, so there's a lot of folklore surrounding this place. One of them is that this was the home of nine witches and it was burnt down in order to 
rid the witches of the town. I want to go there. I do too. <laughs> it, it truly sounds like an interesting place. And when I can bring my stomach around after this case is settled in my brain, I'll see if I can find photos of it for our Facebook page and see if I can discover any more information about it. Because, you know, who doesn't like a spooky place? Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. I really want to see it. I want to, I do too. Like bad. I want to see how much mistletoe grows there. Me too. Since I want to not see just plastic. I want to see the mistletoes in the wild. <laughs> yes. So I will get on that. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll put it on my homework list. Okay. Where'd I leave off? Witch's Castle. Okay. Shanda told them it was too late and her dad would not agree to let her go out. But to come back around midnight after he was sleeping and she would sneak out. Like a typical teenager does. But she's not a teenager. She's 12. Oh, sh- okay. She's 12. The other girls are teenagers. Yes. 15. 17? There's two 15, one 16, and one 17. Okay. She's, oh. she's 12. Why sh- okay. Keep going. Yeah. The four girls left and headed for a skate park where there was a punk rock concert. And after spending time there, you know, they wasted their time waiting. And when the time came, they got in their car and headed back to Shanda's. On the way, Melinda stated she could not wait to kill Shanda. So it was all planned. Well, it kind of seems that way. Okay. But I don't think Everybody was up to date on that. Okay. I think there are a few girls that would have never gotten in the car. But we'll get to that. Okay. Um, They arrived at Shanda's around 1230 in the morning, obviously. This time, Tony refused to go up to the house. So Lori and Hope went. In the meantime... Melinda hid herself under a blanket in the back seat of the car, knife at the ready. Hope told Shanda that Amanda was still waiting for her at the castle, so Shanda changed her clothes and headed to the car. When they got in the car, Hope began questioning Shanda about Amanda and their relationship. About this time, Melinda popped up from under the blanket, grabbed Shanda by the hair, pulled her head back, and put the knife up against her throat. So was she in the front, was Shanda in the front seat? Shanda was in the front in the middle, and they did that on purpose. It's just a condensing thing that I didn't throw in there. Um, As she has her head pulled back and the knife up to her throat, Melinda began questioning Shanda about her sexual relationship with Amanda. She's 12. I doubt she has any sexual relationship. Right, but we're talking about Melinda's girlfriend. The love triangle. It's the love triangle here. I need to cough. I'm sorry. Okay. (laughs) So, once they arrived at the castle, they took Shanda, who by this time was crying in fear, inside the castle and tied up her arms and legs. Melinda started taunting her, saying, 
She wondered how pretty she would be if she cut off all of her hair. Melinda took all of Shanda's rings and passed them around to the other girls. Hope took off Shanda's Mickey Mouse watch. Mickey Mouse. Remember, 12 oh. freaking years old. She took off her Mickey Mouse watch and started dancing around to the music that it played. Lori told Shanda that the castle was full of human remains and she would be next. These girls taunted Shanda endlessly. Now keep in mind, and I've said this plenty already, Shanda may have tried to act older than she really was, but she is still just a 12-year-old baby. No matter how adult she tried to be, she is still a baby. Well, you know, I'm sure she was trying to impress those four girls and wanted to be friends with them. So she tried to be more mature. Right? I got nothing. Am I wrong? I don't think it was those four girls that she was trying to impress because you got to remember here Amanda was 15. That you know the love triangle. Yeah. Yeah. So just she she was probably just trying to impress Amanda. In fact, she had never even met Tony, Lori and Hope before, I don't think. Oh. Oh. Yeah. That makes more sense. Okay. Sorry, I should have put that in there. I there was so much, this, this case can get so confusing with the amount of people that it is involved. So it's, it, I tried to be clear and pick and choose. Yep. Okay. Good. The girls feared being spotted in their current location. So they loaded Shanda up in the car and left for a different location. Shanda begged the girls to just take her home, but her pleas fell on deaf ears. The girls managed to get themselves lost, so they had to stop at a gas station to ask for directions. Now, this part really lights my ass on fire. Do you remember when I said lack of actions in, like, the second or third paragraph? Yep. Yeah, listen to this. While Lori was inside inquiring about directions, Tony got out and used the payphone to call a boy that she knew in Louisville. Now, during this conversation, did... Not once did she try to ask for any intervention. She didn't have the boy call the police. She didn't say anything about what was happening. Not one thing. So to me, this makes her just as much of an accomplice in my eyes. So what was the whole conversation about? Just absolutely nothing. Oh, that's she... evil too. <laughs> she had an opportunity whoops, to try to put a stop to this. And as we get further along, you'll find that Tony had many opportunities for inter intervention and did nothing. Nothing. She's guilty too then. Yep. So enough of my rant, but it just, it chaps my ass and I can't seem to help myself. Now, when they finally got their directions straightened out, they drove to the edge of some woods in Madison, located near Lori's house. They pulled over onto a logging road, and Melinda and Lori pulled Shanda out of the back seat, untied her, and demanded she take off her clothes. Now, I don't know what the weather is like in Indiana in 
what did I say? This is January. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming it's chilly and it's the middle of the night. Yeah. So they, um, Melinda took Shanda's clothes, leaving her only in her underwear and threw the clothes into the car saying that these would be souvenirs for all of us. What the hell? Lori grabbed Shanda's hands and held them behind her back. At this point, Melinda started punching her. Shanda was begging to be taken home. She even promised Melinda that she would stay away from Amanda. But this only seemed to fuel Melinda, and she punched her even more while telling her to shut up. With the breath knocked out of her, Shanda fell to the ground, still begging for them to stop. Melinda grabbed Shanda by the hair and started slamming her head against her knee over and over. Now, Shanda had just had recently had braces installed. So these blows tore up the inside of Shanda's lips. Now, Brianna, we both had braces. Yep. And I can remember how bad it would hurt when this happened. Now, I realize this is absolutely no comparison at all. But even when my dog would get overly excited and jump up to give me a kiss and hit my mouth, my braces would literally cut the insides of my mouth if I didn't have that strip of wax on them. Mm-hmm. And it flipping hurt. Yeah. It, it would bleed. So, oh, the fear. And this was just a happy bump by my dog. So can you imagine what kind of damage was done with these kind of horrific blows? No. Yeah. But the fear she must be feeling at this moment. Oh. Oh, Brianna, this fear will go on for 10 to 10 and a half hours. That ain't no shit. Well, get to it. Hmm. Okay. I want this done and over with. I know. While Shanda was on the ground, Melinda pulls out her knife and attempts to slash her throat. But her knife is not sharp enough. So Hope holds Shanda down as Melinda tries to use her foot to push the knife down through her throat. Are you kidding me? No. When this attempt also failed, Melinda and Lori took turns stabbing Shanda in the chest. When Shanda did not die immediately, Lori decided that they should strangle her and went to the car to look for something to use. All the while, Melinda is down laughing in Shanda's face, who is still begging for them to stop and take her home. Lori came back with some rope, put it around Shanda's neck, and started pulling with all her strength until Shanda finally passed out. Wow. That's horrific. It gets worse. They took Shanda's body and put it in the trunk and drove to Lori's house. They all went into Lori's room, and at this time, the girls tried to to do runestone readings. Now, I know absolutely nothing about runestone readings, but common sense leads me to believe that it may be something similar to a tarot card reading. Mm -hmm. Brianna, don't you dare look it up. I, I have an idea. What's your idea? How about... We give away a crew neck Miners of Mayhem sweatshirt to the first person who emails us with an explanation of what runestone readings are. That's a great idea. Okay. Now, we could announce the winner at the beginning of our next episode, 
but I think there needs to be a little catch here. What's the catch? If you are the winner, you have to agree to send us a photograph wearing our sweatshirt so we can post it on our Facebook page. That's a good catch. Is I that like a good it. catch? I like it. I think it's a great idea to get some of our listeners to engage to and, engage with us and interact. And maybe even start up some merch. Yeah. Like people will see that and maybe we'll want one and heck yeah. Let's okay. Do you, it. you heard it guys. We got a contest going. So minors of mayhem at gmail.com. Minors of mayhem at gmail. Minor, blah, 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 blah. What? Minors of mayhem at gmail.com. Now, this is going to be the apps. We'll go by the time on the email. This will be the absolute first email that hits our inbox. Yep. That has the explanation of runestone readings. We'll come up with a better competition at another time. But off the top of my head, this sounds pretty, pretty okay. Can I enter? No. Oh. Okay. Heifer. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Back to the case. All right. As the girls were doing these readings, they heard the dog barking. And when they gave a little closer listen to their surprise, they heard Shanda's muffled screams coming from the trunk of the car. And they were inside the house? Yes. And nobody else heard her? Apparently not. Whoops, I burped. I'm sorry. Lori retrieved a paring knife from the kitchen. A paring knife? A paring knife. Those things are small. I know. She retrieved a paring knife from the kitchen, went outside, opened the trunk, and stabbed Shanda over and over until she stopped making sounds. Covered in blood, Lori returned to her room and said, We need to go for a drive. Unquote. At this point, Hope and Tony did not want to join, so just Melinda and Lori left in the car. The girls drove around for a bit and decided to pull over and make sure Shanda was dead. When they opened the trunk, to their surprise again, Shanda sat up. Her eyes were rolling back. She was covered in blood. She tried to speak, but only could mumble, and the words she mumbled was, Mommy. God damn. One of the documentaries, documentaries, excuse me, I watched, and in a couple places, I read. This was said to be the last spoken words from Shanda, which this just adds to the fact that she is still just a baby. And damn it, these girls are pond scum. Wow. Lori grabbed a tire iron hit Shanda in the head with it as hard as she could, and shut the trunk. They again started driving around, and I'm not sure how much time lapsed here, but at some point, they heard sounds again coming from the damn trunk. They pull over, Lori gets out, goes to the trunk, opens it, finding Shanda laying on her side, making gurgling noises. Lori again took the tire iron and started hitting her in the head, with one of the blows having so much force behind it that a piece of her skull came off. She absolutely has to be dead now, right? So Lori closes the trunk and gets back in the car. Lori then holds up the tire iron to her nose, smells it, and bursts out laughing. She smells the tire iron. Correct. <laughs> 
which that is covered just... in blood. At this time, the sun is beginning to rise. So, so this began at 1230 in the night, and the sun's starting to come up. Okay. And she's still? At this point, she is 100% still alive. Okay. Okay. At this time, the sun's beginning to rise. They have been at this for hours and hours. So they decide to return to Lori's house. On their way to Lori's house, they made several stops because they could still hear Shanda. Each time they stopped, more blows with the tire iron were inflicted on this little girl. When they arrived back at Lori's, they woke up Hope and Tony to tell them about their drive and that they needed to help take the body to the burn pile. When they got to the burn pile, they determined this was not going to work due to the dampness from the frost overnight. While they're standing around trying to decide on a new plan, Lori shows Hope the body in the trunk. Upon opening the trunk, there's a bottle of Windex laying there. Hope grabs it and starts spraying the Windex into Shanda's wounds. Looked at her and stated, quote, you aren't so hot now, are you? To everyone's shock, Shanda sat up. She's, oh my. Covered in blood, eyes rolled back, and barely having the strength to, to be upright. How is a 12-year-old surviving all of that? That is horrific. Lori tried to speak to her, but Shanda did not respond. It was now that the girls allegedly sodomized this baby girl with a tire iron. According to the coroner, there was extensive damage to the anal region and the anal canal. Another side note, these girls would never admit to the anal rape of Shanda, but to me the evidence is loud and clear and speaks for itself. And it's not above the realm of possibility considered, considering all the torture that they had inflicted on this poor child. According to the coroner, something happened. And he did determine that it was not male penetration. That was determined in the autopsy report. It was an object. By this time, Lori's mom wakes up, opens the door, and yells at Lori. Lori slammed the trunk lid down on Shanda's head and ran into the house to speak with her mom. When Lori returns, they jump in the car and leave. After discussing how to dispose of Shanda, they came to the decision to burn her up. They stopped at a gas station, bought a two-liter bottle of soda, dumped it out, and filled it up with gasoline. They headed towards the old logging road once again and found a place to pull over. Lori opened the trunk. Melinda, Hope, and Lori used a blanket to lift Shanda out of the trunk. They carried her a little ways off behind the car and set her down on the ground. Hope took the bottle of gasoline and poured almost all of it over Shanda. Lori lit a match and the gas soaked Shanda ignited instantly.
the girls jumped back in the car and drove away. I don't know how far they drove, but at one point, Melinda asked Lori to turn around as she wanted to make sure Shanda was still burning. So they returned, and Melinda took what was left of the gas over to where Shanda was on the ground. When she approached Shanda, she was in the fetal position, and her tongue was protruding in and out of her mouth as she was burning up alive. Melinda poured what was left of the gas onto Shanda and returned to the car. She literally thought it was funny that Shanda's tongue was going in and out of her mouth. The Pond Scum girls made their way to McDonald's to eat breakfast. While having their breakfast, Melinda and Lori were laughing as they compared the look of their sausage to that of Shanda's burned body. You okay? I'm pissed. I'm straight up pissed off right now. They went to have breakfast after everything they just did to this little girl. You know, what in the hell is with that? Because that happens in a lot of murders. I they know. go freaking eat. Who in the hell can eat after you do something so horrific? Ew. But anyway. Um, on January 11th, 1992, two hunters, and I believe they were brothers, they were out for the quail season when they spotted something that seemed to be out of place. Now, on one research site, it was said that they thought it was a blow-up doll. But in another research, research site, it was thought to have been a mannequin. But anyway... It's never a mannequin. It, yeah, right. It's never a mannequin. And the thought of it being, you know, somebody saying that it looked like a blow-up doll, that makes zero sense because a blow-up doll is, would literally melt in the fire. Yeah. Just from being close to heat, a blow-up doll would melt. Not that I have any experience with blow-up dolls, but they're made out of, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So just heat would melt it. So I, I'm i leaning towards the mannequin it's here. It's probably just like the size of it is what made it pop into their head. Yeah. Upon getting closer, the horrific truth came to light. This was the burned body of what appeared to be a female. The body seemed to be posed with the only clothing being underwear. The legs were spread in a sexual manner. The arms were extended with clenched fists. Now, Brianna, you know what this is. This is often referred to as a boxer's stance. If anybody watches Dr. G, they know this already. As the body is burned, the tendons shrivel up tight, resulting in clenched fists. The victim's eyes were empty, mouth wide open, and teeth clenched down into her tongue. Oh, my. I'm going to move through the rest of this case in, in a condensed but to-the-point manner. So, the police were called, the scene secured, and documented. The victim was transported to the coroner's office, and the autopsy report had some of the following find findings. Lacerations to the head, neck, and legs, ligature marks of the wrist, lacerations around the anus and inside the anal canal, third and fourth degree burns mostly from the waist up and soot in the upper airway. Now, soot doesn't just magically get in the upper airway. You have to be breathing. So she was alive. She was she very was much alive. alive. There's much, much more to the autopsy report, but these are the condensed findings, and you get the idea. They coincide with what I've told you about this crime. Yep. 
Later the same evening, Tony and Hope walked into the police station with their parents and hysterically reported the horrific events and the first name only of the vi victim. Because remember, they'd never met her. So they didn't even know her last name. The Jefferson County Police Department called the Clark County Police Department, where it was indeed confirmed that Shanda's parents had reported Shanda as a missing person that very same day. Dental records were used to positively identify the victim as that of 12-year-old Shanda Sheriff. On January 12, 1992, Melinda and Lori were also arrested. All the girls were to be tried as adults, but in exchange for taking the death penalty off the table, each girl a plea, agreed to a plea deal. It's probably better than having a trial because the parents don't have to go through this. You know what I mean? This was horrific. Yeah. I, I don't think as a parent that, I mean, I would want to know what happened to my child, but me, I, I don't know. If I, yeah. what, was the, what was the plea deal? So here we go. In exchange, all the girls were tried to be in a, tried as adults, but in exchange for taking the death penalty off the table, they agreed to the plea deal. Melinda and Lori were sentenced to 60 years, 60 years in prison. Hope received a 60-year sentence, later being reduced to 35 years, and Tony was sentenced to a maximum of 20 years. Tony was released on parole December 14th of 2000 after serving only nine years. Now remember, she did not take part in any of this, but she is just as guilty by lack of action as anybody else. Yep. But I don't know that there was too much that they could really charge her on. What could you imagine, like, if, I mean, I don't know. Maybe she was torn by, you know, telling and not telling, because if she didn't tell, or if she did tell, what would have Melinda done to her? Right. But she had Maybe every she opportunity scared. to call the police, and the police would have protected her. She yeah. had every opportunity to do the right thing. But it could be in, in her immature little mind, she could have been terrified. I yeah. mean, obviously, she's seen what they were capable of. It was so, it's so hard to tell. Right. At that age, yeah. Always, people always do the right thing, no matter what. Just do the right thing. Okay, so... Hope will be there soon. Right. Hope was released April 28th of 2006 after serving only 14 years. Lori was released on January 11th, 2018 after serving only 26 years. And do you recognize that date right there? January 11th? Yes. 26 years to the, the day. day. Melinda was released September 5th. 2019 after serving only slightly more than 26 years. So, while in prison, Melinda became a dog trainer for the Indiana Canine Assistance Network program through Project to Heal. They provide service dogs to people with disabilities. Melinda was apparently said to be very, very good at this. Oh. And in 2012, Jackie, Shanda's mom, bought a dog named, and named the dog Angel, and donated Angel to the program for Melinda 
to train in honor of Shanda. Now, that Shanda's mom? Yes, ma'am. Listen to the rest. Jackie received a lot of backlash for this decision, but in her own defense, she responded, quote, It's my choice to make. She's my child. If you don't let good things come from bad things, nothing gets better. And I know what my child would want. My child would want this, unquote. I'm losing it. Can we pause for a second? And we're back. Sorry about that. My emotions were definitely taking me over. So you just got done saying how Shanda's mom bought the dog for Melinda to train. What about Shanda's father? What Did he have anything to do with it, too? or? Well, n no, he did not. And the reason why is Steve died in 2005. He blamed himself for his daughter's death. And he couldn't move past it, and he basically drank himself to death. So he died. He did die. And she donated the dog in 2012, and he, he had already passed on in oh, wow. 2005. I mean, he just, he couldn't live with it. He, she was in his care when this happened, and he just couldn't get past it. Oh, no, my computer. Don't do that to me. What would you do? I accidentally shut it down. Uh -oh. I didn't shut it down, but let me see if I can. I'll, I'll pause. And we're back again. Sorry. Um, on this, I'm going to close the book on this case. I don't ever want to do this case again. If you have any questions, suggestions, or just want to hash over a case that we've covered, or submit a story of your own that you'd like read or think is interesting, whatever the situation may be, and our contest. <laughs> Don't forget. I was just going to say, in the contest. You can email us at minersofmayhem at gmail.com. You can follow us on Facebook and see case photos and links to our show by just looking up Miners of Mayhem in the search engine. Thank you so very much for listening. And if you are so inclined, please give us a rate and a review. We appreciate each and every one of you and cannot wait to bring you along on the next episode. In the meantime, Please refrain from being pond scum. Life is too short. And keep your happy asses safe out there. Bye. Bye.